Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. On December 31st, 1999, I sit in the back pew of a little Baptist church. And I was really disappointed because it was New Year's Eve, and as a 16-year-old, I was not allowed to go anywhere. I was in church on New Year's Eve. But I was, if I'm honest, a little bit nervous because this was the time of a little something called Y2K. Who remembers Y2K? What a time. What a time. It was when the computer, like computers would basically shut down and the world would explode. That's what we were in part expecting, the worst case scenario, the world just might end. Four years before this, there was a book series that began to be published called Left Behind. (laughs) There it is. In all his glory. Can you believe there's that many left behind books? It's like, that's just like going in circles, starting back again. I don't know what's happening there. Kirk Cameron movie came out about a year after that, in year 2000. And around this time, I just remember it being a lot of people talking about, this feels like it's just going to be the end of the world. And, and especially these last five years, too, uh, with all of the... Uh, uproar and unrest in our nation and across the world. I've heard people say, I've seen on Facebook several times, people put, we're living through the book of Revelation right now. And the truth is, is that every Christian generation since AD 33 has been saying, we're living through Revelation right now. Actually, not AD 33, because it was written about 95. So everyone after that, everyone has thought it's the end of the world. Paul himself and the scriptures thought that the end was coming soon. I'm sure you've heard that before. I know when I began to tell some folks here in the church that we were going to follow, we're follow the lectionary, but that we were going to use the verses from the book of Revelation, I got some looks of, are you freaking kidding me? I cannot believe... We are going there. For hundreds of years, though, especially in America, Christians have paid particular attention to this book with a great deal of emphasis on predicting the end of the world, when the end of the world will come. One of those days was on my birthday, May 21st, 2013. It did not happen. Um, Otherwise, we would not be here, I'm assuming. But I'm very grateful that the world did not end on my birthday because that would have been really bad for my party, and I would be mad about that. And so because of all this, I know you've probably seen things on TV. You've probably seen preachers with big hair screaming about the end of the world. Maybe you read some Left Behind books. I'm not sure, but a lot of people, most people I know, when we talk about this book, it's like you want to just kind of keep your distance. Like... It's like the crazy uncle of the Bible, you know? Family, family, yes, but, you know, we're not going to hang around very often here. Many of us, I would say, have completely misunderstood the book of Revelation. 
completely misunderstood of it. And, and my aim in these next few weeks as we do this and walk through the lectionary together is that not only we have a better understanding of the scriptures themselves, but that we would be equipped and empowered and even encouraged, um, not just for something that happens in the future, but for this life, because the scriptures are written for this life. Revelation is actually mostly written for this life. So I want to pray for that as we jump in here to the scriptures today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word exists outside of our comforts often because it forces us to see things differently. And Lord, I want to, I want to ask that you would put aside any misconceptions, any fears, and Lord, that you would speak clearly to us by your spirit, this wonderful word of encouragement to the church we see. Uh, open us up to that, Lord. Speak today in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's jump in. Here we go. Revelation 1. We're going to start in verse 4. It says, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So John's writing to this network of churches. They call it Asia, but this is actually eastern Turkey, modern-day eastern Turkey. And he's writing this in exile. He's, he's beginning to see persecution, and John has been sent off to this island of Patmos. He's, he's there and, and writing these letters to encourage all of these Christians spread across this area of the Roman Empire. And around this time, persecution is beginning to increase. It's becoming harder and harder and harder and harder to be a follower of Jesus in this world. And so first and foremost, that's what we need to know jumping in, is that Revelation's primary purpose, it's to encourage Christians to remain uncompromising and faithful to Jesus in the midst of a growing suffering and persecution. It's written in a particular time, in a particular context, for a particular people. So what does that mean for us? It means that, yes, this is the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, but it means that in order to understand this, and really all of the Scriptures, in order to understand, we need to understand the context in which it was written, and more importantly, understand that it's not written in the context of 21st century America. So that should hopefully be a good starting point for us. Now, are there strange symbols and signs? Yeah, of course there are. There's lots of cosmic battles and things like that. But these signs and these symbols are not given as some sort of secret language so that we can kind of turn our heads around to see something that we not, would not otherwise be able to see. And sometimes it feels like with to read the book of Revelation, you have to wear a tinfoil hat to be able to understand it. And that's not the case. These would have been symbols that were very, very recognizable to the church in the first century. And it's language that is an encouragement to these people who are being faithful to the kingdom of God in the midst of empire, in the midst of very hard times. They were symbols that spoke to people in oppression. And like the symbolism that we might see in old Negro spirituals, it's not directly saying what you think it's saying, but it is an encouragement. So as they sang these songs, they remembered and sang their hope in ways that their masters didn't always understand. It's coded language as an encouragement for people. So we need to understand that this is written to a church to encourage, not to be some sort of fortune-telling book for us. Michael Gorman, he writes that Revelation is not about the Antichrist, 
but about the living Christ. It's not about a rapture out of this world, but a faithful discipleship in this world. Revelation is intended to reveal, not conceal. At the same time, like biblical prophecy, its goal is not speculative foresight, but theological insight. Both then and now, this book can be summed up as Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord, and whoever is president is not. Amen? Jesus is Lord, and our parties and our politicians are not. It is an encouragement for them, and it's encouragement for us that we have a kingdom that is not of this world, but is for this world, that we are to live in this world. It's a book really then about worship, because when life is really hard, when it's growing weary, when we're not sure how much longer we can hold on, when it feels like the ground beneath your feet is shifting all of the time, we need to remember who this Jesus is that we actually follow. And that's where John begins. Let's keep reading. He says, grace and peace to you from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the people on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It repeats that twice. The one who is the one who was, and the one who is to come. It also calls Jesus the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So John is saying in coded language, Jesus is the beginning and the end of our lives. Jesus is the first and the last. He is where everything starts. He is where everything ends. He is everything to us. Jesus is eternal. And not only is Jesus eternal, Jesus is unchanging in his eternal nature. Hebrews 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and for, um, forever, meaning that God does, does not change. He's not dependent on the circumstances of our world. He is not dependent in his nature on our, our, our whims or our moods. God is God on God's terms, and he doesn't change with the shifting sands of the world around us. When we don't feel like God is there, it does not mean that God is there because our feelings, our expressions, our circumstances do not change God, and that's good news. That's very good news, and it's good news because we are living, as we know, in a world of exponential change, change constantly, meaning that not only are things changing, but this change is multiplying upon itself. There's, this has become especially true in a global pandemic, how much stuff has changed. Think about how much stuff in your life has changed in the last two years. A lot, right? A ton. Harvard Business Review, they wrote this article. It's Anil Chima and, and Ron Gutman. He says that COVID-19 
and its derivatives laid bare a new normal of change marked by three dimensions. It's perpetual, occurring all the time in an ongoing way. It's pervasive, unfolding in multiple areas of life at once, and it's exponential, accelerating at an increasingly rapid rate. Think about that perpetual, pervasive, exponential change constantly. How many of you have felt that? Felt that shift and change and seeing the disorientation that rises up within you. It's no wonder that in our world, our anxiety and our depression is going through the roof because we cannot keep up with the world around us. There's no way we can. And when everything around us is changing at such an exponential face, you know what that feels like? It feels like the end of the world. It feels like the end of the world as... We know it. Thank you. I got, one, I got one REM fan back there. Thank you. I was hoping for it. It probably feels like what the book of Revelation is actually in the Greek called apocalypse. How many of you have heard that word apocalypse? You know what that word actually means? It doesn't mean a battle or destruction. Apocalypse means literally the revealing. What is being revealed? And what happens in a world that is constantly changing is it begins to reveal who we really are, doesn't it? It begins to reveal what is actually true around us. I want to ask us a couple of questions real quick. I want you to think about this. How much has your life fundamentally changed in the last two years? And the second question I want to ask on top of that is, how have you responded to that change? How have you responded? I mean, have you fought back? Have you ran away? Have you numbed the pain the best you can? Have you lashed out in anger? Have you drew deeper into a sense of emotional isolation? Have you tried your best to hide an inward anxiety that keeps finding its way out, even when it's not in our voice and what we say, but feeling it in our bodies? Have you seen your relationships damaged in the process of these last few years because of this? Has it felt like to you chaos? Now, I don't know if any of this is true of you. I don't know how this constant change has shaped your inner world or how it's changed the way you see your world, see your neighbors. But that chaos is the chaos that God speaks into in these words from the scriptures today. The one who is, the one who was. And the one who is to come, that God is unchanging in a world that is always changing. His character and his purpose is not dependent on the circumstances that you and I will face. He's not dependent on how much faith we have, not dependent on our religious performance. We do not change God. And that's good news. That is good news, because when change is perpetual and pervasive and exponential, we need a God that does not change. We need an unchanging God to be an anchor, to be something that holds us in an ever-changing world, don't we?
Matthew 7 speaks of this. It reminds me of these words as Jesus finishes out the Sermon on the Mount. These words that stand as a challenge, a a warning, an encouragement, kind of all wrapped into one. He, He says these words. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, I've heard this scripture all my life, and I used to hear this and think, well, there's, there's, there's two separate places here. There's a rock on this side, and there's the sand. There's people who build it over here on the rock, and then the people who are just building it on the sand. But when you look at that Greek word there, Petra, for rock, it, it doesn't just mean a rock or a boulder. It literally means bedrock, meaning the very foundation underneath our feet, bedrock. And so what this means for us, and I hope you don't miss this, is that we all start on sand, We all start on the surface. If we build our lives, build our faith on the surface level, we will find that when storms come, things begin to shift and to shake and to falter. And what Jesus is telling us is that we are to build on something that lasts, meaning we are to dig down into the bedrock of our very lives. Dig down into the deepest places of ourselves and allow our faith to be built on what is not constantly changing. Building on something that is a firm foundation that will last in the midst of the storm. Forcing us to ask a question today is asking, what am I building my life on? And will that last? Every person here needs to be able to answer that question. What am I really building my life on? And when the storms come, not if, when, will it last? It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And we're all building our life on on something. The book of Revelation, as we're entering this together, it's written to this weary, suffering church where the world is shifting under our feet. Our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago were, were in a different way, but in similar ways experiencing culture shifts, change all around them. They're experiencing suffering and death and persecution, and they need it more than anything in hiding sometimes in the midst of seeing their friends and neighbors put to death. They needed to know there is a God who was and who is who is to come. And every generation of the church, us, all Christians before us, across nationality, across culture, across tradition, we've always had to wrestle with this. We've always had to remember that when things get tough, when they get hard, we have to remember the God that we actually cling to and know what he is like. It reminds me of someone, I've spoken of him often, he's one of my heroes, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the 1930s, the first half, the Nazi party, they're on the rise. And the church in Germany, they're facing questions about whether or not they are going to have allegiance to Jesus or have Jesus as sort of a 
bumper sticker on top of their Nazi ideology, and most of the German church compromised. They became a nationalist community. About 70% of the leaders of the German church in that time aligned themselves with the Nazis, and they began to decry those who did not. They called them Marxists. They called them unpatriotic. They called them lots and lots of names. The German church, as you can see in this picture, they became the servant of Hitler. That is the altar. What a jarring picture to have the cross and the scriptures sitting on top of the swastika. They compromised because if they were to say no to Hitler and to this political empire, they would have been either cast out, some of them killed, some of them were. And Bonhoeffer, he wound up being cast out of his leadership, cast out of his power within the German church. And he wound up leading this underground community of pastors and leaders, and they called it Finkenwald Seminary. They met in secret. And there's a picture here of, of some of the folks he was training and living along with. It, it's so cool. They were, they were living out this life together in community. They were allowing the Sermon on the Mount, the very words we read today, to be the foundation of their lives, to be sort of the constitution and bylaws, to be the bill of rights of their community. That was central to them, to follow Jesus, to follow the Sermon on the Mount, and to live like him. And, and you know, Bonhoeffer, he turned down a, a safe job at Yale, teaching. He came to the U.S. and was convicted by God that I cannot leave my people knowing what's happening. I have to go back. Even though I could stay here, I could teach theology. I could become a famous theologian. But I, he felt like, I got to go, I got to go back. I got to be with my people. As hard as that going to be, even knowing I may die in the process. So right under the nose of the Nazis, kind of outside of the center of Germany, he begins Finkenwald Seminary. And he centered it on training pastors and leaders to live in the way of Jesus in the midst of a very dark and dangerous empire. And the story goes, and I think I've told this story before, that one of his friends came to him from Berlin during this time when he was in Finkenwald. And, and he was asking him to reconsider because Bonhoeffer was a part of a very influential family in Germany. And so he didn't want the one who was influential to kind of be ostracized and on the outside. You're on the inside, so you need to be a part of the power of what's happening here. And Bonhoeffer, understanding this, listened but did not respond. And what he did instead was he took his friend onto a boat. He rowed across this lake, and they climbed up on top of this hill and looked down, and there was a bunch of Hitler youth marching. There was a Nazi encampment, things building all around him. And he looked at his friend. He pointed down at the Nazi encampment. He pointed back at Finkenwald Seminary. He said, this must be stronger than this. This must be stronger. Our community of faith, our allegiance to Jesus, our life together has to be stronger than what is unfolding in front of us. Bonhoeffer would later be killed in a concentration camp, April 9th, 1945. In his final words, he's climbing up onto the gallows. He says, this is the end. But for me, the beginning of life. That is the message of the book of Revelation.
that what feels like an end is actually a beginning. For a church who is weary, for followers of Jesus who feel like everything is shifting underneath their feet, there is a God who is unchanging that we can cling to. And like Bonhoeffer, we must say, this must be stronger than this. What we build here in this community, our allegiance to Jesus, our life together must be stronger than the pools, than the cries of empire, and even in our suffering. And we don't, we aren't persecuted like Christians across the world right now in any way possible. We need to learn from those Christians and believers very much, but our strength together in following Jesus, our allegiance to Jesus in the midst of the empires that we will face is the foundation of our hope in the age to come as everything changes. So we pray today that we would cling to the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega. And I pray today, Jesus, that these words that maybe some of us have held at arm's length for a long time, would, that the walls would crumble down, that we would see these words, these callings to faithful allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And I thank you that we are reminded, whether we lived in the first century or the 21st century, whether we are believers and house churches in China, mega churches in Africa, little huts in India, gathering and singing, persecuted Christians, Christians here in the United States, that we would know the God who is unchanging. We do not know the future, Lord. We do not know the struggles that lie ahead, the storms that rage now or the storms that will come. But we begin with clinging to you as our unchanging, faithful, everlasting God. So anchor us in that today. We pray this.